Well, as you're being seated, please open the Bible, the Word of God to Genesis chapter 42, and we continue to work through this book of Genesis, book of beginnings God has given to us. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh... You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. We said to him, we are honest men. We've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. 
Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they saw and their fathers saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Well, do you realize we have just read words breathed out by God? Let's pray and ask him to help us understand these words so that we can receive these words into our hearts and minds. Father, you have given us this word. Lord, you have preserved it. God, we have it now here in our hands. Lord, I pray that we would not take for granted what you have said. Lord, that we would take the time, Lord, to consider what you teach us. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds, that you would be glorified by the change that happens within. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. His words to us. God breathed inspired words of life. They were preserved for us. They were translated into our language. We have now read them so that we can learn and grow. And it may not be immediately clear how these words, how this account is going to apply to our lives. But let's dig in. Let's dive in to find out how this is going to affect us. Let's look at this chapter in three parts. And the first part is just in verses 1 through 5. The ten brothers go to Egypt. That's the first blank, just the number 10, or you can write it out, 10. Jacob learns there's grain for sale in Egypt, and to those of us who have been studying and we've looked ahead a little bit, we know that everything that's happening right now is for their good. It's all happening as part of God's plan, uh, because nobody else in the entire area has any food. Not in the land of Canaan, not any of the lands around them, only in Egypt. And Jacob's 11 sons don't know what to do, so they're apparently doing Nothing. So Jacob says, why are you guys standing around looking at each other? (laughs) Why don't you do something? There's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy it. The famine is so severe and so sudden already to this point that it's already do or die, right, for the family of Israel. So everybody go down to Egypt, everybody except Benjamin. Joseph's only brother by the same mother, Rachel, is Benjamin. And you remember that Joseph was Jacob's favorite until Joseph was no longer there. Well, Benjamin has taken his place as Jacob's favorite son. So we see the favoritism start to arise here, but it gets worse than that. Brothers and sisters, it gets deeper than that for Jacob, and it starts to just come out of these pages, out of these words for us. And it says the reason here in verse 4 that Jacob didn't send him because for he feared that harm might happen to him. You remember back in Jacob's life, we've seen at different points, fear has gripped him and controlled him. And so he's acted out, made decisions based on fear. 
not as fear of God, but as fear of something bad that might happen. In this case, something bad that might happen to Benjamin. Now, we know that we shouldn't live in fear of anyone or anything under heaven, right? We should be fearing God, and that's all. But it wouldn't do a whole lot of good to tell Jacob, stop fearing. Don't live in fear, just believe. That wouldn't help him much. In Jacob's case, it really becomes clear that this controlling fear in his life is a result of something else. And the result of that, it's, it's a result of deep sorrow. Deep sorrow. Jacob has not worked through the real sadness over Joseph's death. Now again, we know Joseph's not really dead. But to Jacob, in his mind, Joseph is dead. But he has not worked through that, that grief, that sorrow. Remember in chapter 37, verse 35, he told everybody around him, you look, I'm going to live the rest of my life in sorrow. He's already decided, I'm going to be sad from now on. And he rejected everybody's attempt to, con- to, to console him, to comfort him. And every time Jacob speaks, really, for the next few chapters, he's going to refer back to that sorrow, back to that grief. He, he's living in sorrow. It's the sorrow in his heart that's controlling him. But the way that he's handling that sorrow is to do everything he can to protect himself against feeling any more sorrow or feeling it again or experiencing any kind of more sorrow. So he tries to use fear as a shield, as a protection from sorrow. But the problem, brothers and sisters, with using fear is that fear actually begins to use you and to control you. So Jacob shouldn't just tell himself, stop fearing, don't live in fear. And nobody else should be coming around Jacob and saying, look, stop fearing, just believe, just trust more. We should say that. We should do that. We should grow in that. We should grow in fearing the Lord and not the things around us. But he needs to work on his sorrow first. And then he can address his fear problem. Now, this isn't a counseling session with Jacob, so we can't see his heart and we can't get more information about what's going on. But what's really happened for him here, as we see, is that he wants what he can't have. He wants his son back. And that's not something bad to want, is it? He's grieving over his loss, and that's okay to do. When we have pain, when we've got sorrow, it is okay to be sorrowful, to grieve. In the case of a lost child, no matter what age they are, or any kind of other events that cause deep sorrow, you may feel that kind of sorrow for the rest of your life. Sorrow is not sinful. But how you work through that sorrow can be sinful. Or not working through that sorrow can lead to sin. To use fear or anxiety or depression or anger or any of the answers that we turn to just naturally, to use those weapons or shields against sorrow is a fleshly answer. It's not God's answer. And never to actually deal with sorrow, just to avoid it or pretend it's not real, is a fleshly answer, not God's answer. So we may need to, even even in the midst of sorrow, we may have to actually take a step back and repent of sin, the way that we've responded to that sorrow, but then actually begin to work with sorrow. The, The way to work in sorrow, as we've been singing this morning, as we've been reminding one another, as we learn from the scriptures, is is to grasp the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. 
so that we take solace, we take comfort in Him rather than in the things of the world, the things that the world offers, the things that the flesh tries to do so that we can try to ease the pain or, or so that we can, we can pretend that the event or the, the circumstances didn't happen or so that we can never feel that way again. Again, even though the sorrow or the grief or the pain may never go away in this life, our comfort and our rest can be and should be placed in the Lord, the good, wise, powerful God. There's a difference between how we experience sorrow when we trust in Him and when we don't. So we have this in our notes. It, it seems so trite for us. It seems so simple, but in situations beyond our control, trust the Lord. We trust in Him. It's easy to say that. It's so difficult to live it, isn't it? That's why we have one another to help each other. That's why we have the brothers and sisters next to us and, and around us. And that, that's why we don't just come together on Sunday for an hour and a half or two hours or you know, however long we're here for. Um, that's why we don't just see each other one day a week. We, we have groups of fellowship, koinonia fellowship. That's why we come together. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we're given to one another. To help one another to learn to trust this good, wise, powerful God. And a lot of times we get the powerful part right. You know, God, well, I know you're in charge, but why are you doing this? We miss the wisdom of God. We miss his goodness through it all. So rather than living wisely and carefully while trusting the Lord, we can follow Jacob's example too often, too easily and quickly to live fearfully, even foolishly, not trusting the Lord and prolong sorrow and, and make it worse and then, and then start introducing other, other things into our lives like fear and anxiety and, and anger. Trusting the Lord leads to being prepared and able to deal and cope with sorrow. Not trusting Him leads to further sorrow and other problems, vulnerable to devastation. So that's what we see here. These are the circumstances that we see with Jacob and his 10 sons, the 10 sons who go to Egypt. Those are the circumstances. Let's look at number two, the testing of these 10 brothers in Egypt. In verses 6 through 25, the testing begins in Egypt. Now, verse 6 reminds us that Joseph is governor in Egypt, the one who sold the grain to everybody. But then we see the detailed explanation of what happens. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So this is not a courtesy bow, is it? It's, it's not one of those, um, hey, what's going on? <laughs> it's not one of those, uh, hey, how's it going? This is all the way down to the ground. And any other time, any other person doing this, this happens to Joseph on a normal occasion. This is what happens. People need bread, grain, so they come before him and they bow and they ask for it humbly and then he gives it to them. But Joseph, verse 8 says, recognizes his brothers while they don't recognize him. And that causes him to remember his dreams. Remember the dreams we've been talking about, the dreams that are finally coming true. What God does not say happens here is that Joseph remembered his brother's treatment of him. Oh, I know these guys, <laughs> right? I remember how they hated me, how they were jealous of me, how they threw me into a pit. They were about to kill me. They, they sold me into slavery. And it doesn't say he remembered all the terrible things that have happened to him after that. He remembered the dreams that God has given him, that God had given him, that said this was all going to happen. This is coming. But his brothers didn't recognize Joseph. You know, they're bowing before this man in Egypt. It, 
how many times in the past 20 years have they bowed before somebody? <laughs> I mean, it hasn't happened, right? The last thing that happened was that they, that they should be thinking about was, well, there were those dreams that Joseph told us that we would be bowing before him. We've not bowed before anybody, but now here we are. They really haven't seen that this is God's word being fulfilled. This is what God said was going to happen, but they don't have any concept of that in their minds. Now, part of this could be understood, right? Because Joseph's name isn't Joseph right now as they're speaking to him. He's got fine linen and a gold chain on, not what you would expect to see from a slave. They sold him into slavery. He's speaking Egyptian rather than Hebrew. Verse 23 says there's an interpreter there. He's clean shaven. It's been over 20 years. So, I mean, it's understood that they wouldn't recognize him right away, right? But regardless, they genuinely don't think that Joseph could even possibly be alive or that this could be the fulfillment of what God had said. They've either so bought into their own lie that he was eaten by an animal, the story they told their father, or they just believe nobody that went into slavery could be anything other than a slave. They couldn't even possibly be alive. So in verse 7, Joseph treats his brothers like strangers, people he doesn't know, people he doesn't trust. He spoke roughly, harshly to them. What the idea here is, it's not just I don't know you, I don't trust you, and I don't find any reason to even try to trust you. And for the Egyptians all around uh, Joseph at this time, for the Egyptians standing all around, that's expected. That was a general policy in Egypt. If you've got strangers coming in, you treat them like strangers. You don't trust them until they're proven trustworthy. But Joseph personally knows these guys, right? He knows already, I I shouldn't trust these guys yet. So verse 9, despite their appeal that they've only come to buy food, he says, no, you're spies. Now, they respond with, a certain, a certain way here. Have you ever heard of the game, the icebreaker game, two truths and a lie? You, you say three things about yourself, two of them are true, one of them's a lie, and people are supposed to guess which one's the, you know, the lie, which one's not true, and then it you know, opens up conversation, and you get to know people. Well, um, that's apparently what these 10 men do here. They say in verse 10, we've come to buy food. That's true. Uh, verse 11, we are sons of one man. That's true. We are honest men. <laughs> not true, right? They may have been living like honest men for the past 20 years, but 20 years ago, they sold their brother into slavery. And then they came back and lied to their father, told him that he was eaten by animals, and they've let that lie live on. They've lived out that lie every day for the past over 20 years. And they've watched their father believe in that death, mourn and sorrow over that death in those unhealthy, ungodly ways that we talked about for those over 20 years. They're not honest men, and Joseph knows that. So in verse 12, he repeats, you've come to see how bad it is here, the nakedness of the land. In verse 13, they give him even more information about the family, the youngest is home, but there's one brother that's no more. They acknowledge that without saying Joseph's name. Verse 14, he ignores all of that. He accuses them again of being spies. And in verse 16, again, accusing them of being spies. But verse 15 is the key to unlocking everything that's happening here. What is going on? What is Joseph doing? Verse 15, he says, by this you shall be tested. That's the key. That's the idea. That's what's happening here. This is Joseph testing his brothers. The word test is that word for assaying a metal. You know, let's find out if this metal is pure, if it's, if it's true. These men are coming, they're bowing down in a show of humility, they're saying we are honest men, let's find out if that's true. 
Have they confessed to their father what they did? What kind of men are they? How is he going to test them? Well, for one thing, he's going to give them some medicine that he's had to deal with for the last 20 years. He, he brings them into this foreign land, into an uncomfortable situation. Uh, you, you're in trouble here, and you haven't even done anything wrong. Nothing like what Joseph had to deal with, but they're feeling pressure right now. They're feeling like they're under some intense scrutiny. And then he gives them a false accusation to deal with, like he had to deal with. Next, just like they did to him, he's going to tell them he's going to do this, and then he's going to change his mind, get a new plan, and tell them the new plan. So they're going to be off balance. They're going to be struggling. They're going to be afraid and suffering, uh, being falsely accused and, and wondering what is happening, what's going on. He says, you're all going to stay here and one's going to go back. And then he changes his mind and says, never mind. One's going to stay and all the rest of you are going to go back. But the test is here. Are you going to become what you profess to be? You say you're this. Are you going to become that? Are you going to do what it takes to live out your profession? Are you going to care for your brother? Now, some people see Joseph getting some revenge, getting some payback here against his brothers. But there are a few reasons I don't agree that that's what's happening. The first is what we just looked at. Joseph says this is a test. It's not revenge. A second reason is that revenge usually carries at least a commensurate amount of pain, right? You caused me so much pain, I'm going to give you the same amount or more. That's what revenge usually does. But think about it. At no point from here to the end of of Genesis, at no point are the brothers in any real danger, right? It's all manufactured by Joseph. It's all a result of a guilty conscience in their mind. They're never in any real actual danger. So, I mean, that seems like that's not revenge when there's no real pain, no real danger to them. Finally, Joseph gives them the reason for his actual plan in verse 18. He says, look, I've got a new plan. Here's what's going to happen. And the reason is because I fear God. Joseph fears God, even if Jacob fears circumstances. If this is truly about revenge, he's not going to say, you know, he's not going to appeal to his fear of God as the basis for what he's doing. Verse 19 says they need to get the grain to their households. You know, it's not, it's too much for one man to do. So all of you go back except one, get the food back to your family. He's genuinely caring for them and their family. So this doesn't appear to be revenge to me. It's a test as it says it is. Now, the other question that we may wonder is what gives Joseph the right to test his brothers like this? And even more close to home, even closer to home, maybe, uh, when might I be able to do that with people, <laughs> right? I mean, when, when would I be able to do this? Well, the, the answer, of course, is that Joseph is obviously in a very unique position. God told him specifically this would happen, and it's all happened and is happening now for the sake of saving Israel from the famine They're going to come down to Egypt and they're going to flourish for the next 400 years. This is for their good. But if these men, these 12 men of of Israel, sons of Israel and, and Israel, Jacob himself, if they all come down to Egypt and they're going to be there for 400 years and they're going to come the way they are right now, individuals looking out for themselves, no integrity, no honesty, not sticking together, willing to sell each other out to save their own necks, If they come down that way, they're just going to be absorbed by the Egyptians, and that's the end of Israel. There's no more line of God. They're going to be absorbed. So they need to be changed before they come in to Egypt as part of God's plan. They can't come in and be useful to God the way they are. 
even when Joseph came to Egypt, God used a lot of different events and circumstances that were difficult in Joseph's life to prepare him even for this point. So this is important for us to understand. What, what God has for us, brothers and sisters, what God has for each of us is always better than what we have right now. It's always better than what we think we want or need. But God's plan also always requires a change to be made within us. God's working on these men through Joseph. That's why Joseph is testing them. God's doing this through him. So Joseph puts all 10 of them in prison in verse 17. Verse 18 says they're there for three days. Again, the Egyptian prison of terrible, filthy, hopeless place. You're only getting out of there to get punished or killed, all right? I mean, so, so in these circumstances, God is really working in their hearts and on their conscience. Verses 18 to 20, he says, nope, change of plans. One stays, everybody else goes back. They agreed, but look at their hearts. Their, their hearts are finally being affected by the sin they've tried to cover up for over 20 years. Verse 21, they start talking to each other. In Hebrew, they don't, under, they don't know that Joseph is listening, that he can understand them. But they start discussing, and we see this is the strongest admission of guilt in the entire book of Genesis. Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother. They admit their guilt. But be careful. This is God working in their hearts, but the work is not done. For the first time, they admit guilt. That's progress. But it's not the same thing as repentance. Change that we talked about that God requires in his people has not happened yet. It started, but it's not complete. How do we know that? I met a man and a woman for marriage counseling one time, and the two of them had showed up, and they were there to work through some issues, I thought. But the man was very quiet. He wasn't answering many questions, so I started to ask him some pointed questions. Uh, Are you committed to working on this marriage? I don't know. Are you committed to this marriage? I mean, you know, this is, th- these things that you're talking about are not insurmountable. These are not impossible things. Are you just, are you committed to the marriage? I don't know. And I was totally, if I can confess to you, unprepared for those answers. I was totally unprepared for that. You're, you're here. You showed up, like, to work through these issues, but now you're telling me that you're not sure. Are, are you committed? And, and after a pause, he says, I, I don't think it's worth it now, now that I think about it. And for some reason in my mind, I had no concept that this could happen. I mean, you're, you're sitting here, you came, you showed up, and, and now my pointed questions are actually helping him to resolve, yeah, no, I, I'm, I think I need to be done with this marriage, and I'm just, I'm floored, and I'm, I'm worried, like I said, that, that my questions are actually helping him, you know, to go the wrong direction instead of coming back in. He's giving fewer I don't know answers and more there's no point answers. So we start talking about how serious this is. And before God, before his wife, before his children, before everyone that he made his vows before, he's going back on all of that. He said, yes, I know. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew it was sin. But he was going to do it anyway. He was acknowledging guilt, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. See, that's not repentance, is it? Just to acknowledge guilt. It was so heartbreaking, and it's still heartbreaking as I think about it now, but there are 10 brothers here who are acknowledging guilt. Yes, we're guilty, but there's not a repentance. They continue to live the lie to their father. When they go back, they're going to tell him nothing about any of this. 
So what I want to do is just take a few minutes now just to look at what repentance is. What does it look like? So if you'll turn with me, hold your place here in Genesis. We won't be gone long. We'll come right back. But to, over to Romans chapter 1. Uh, we, we need to understand repentance. We need to understand that faith in God is accompanied by repentance so that when we believe in Him, we turn away from sin. We don't just acknowledge guilt. We don't just say, okay, I'm a sinner like you said. We acknowledge it. We confess it and we turn from it. Here in Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Everything that we need to know about who God is at a basic fundamental level comes from creation and that drives us into his word so that we can become fully, fully educated about who God is. But there is enough in creation that they now that they see the things that have been made, they can see God's glory, they can see that he exists, people become without excuse, the, ver- the end of verse 21 says. Verse 21, they know God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks, beca- but became futile in their thinking. This is, one of the, this is one of the areas, this is one of the parts of the, what makes up who we are, our mind. The, their mind is ruined It's futile because of sin. Their foolish hearts were darkened. This is another part of us, our heart, uh, the the emotional center of us, our affections, what we love. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Their, Their thinking is affected, their emotions are affected, but then what they want, their will their desires, their lusts have changed. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for creatures, for images of creatures. So we see here that the mind, the emotions, and the will are against God. They've refused God, and we're in trouble. Therefore, God gives them up to their mind, emotions, and will. In verse 24, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. That's their emotions. That leads to sinful actions. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That's their will, the, the, the things that they want, which leads to sinful actions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So it's mind, emotions, and will. All of it overcome with sin, and all three are included in our sinfulness before God. They're impacted by it. And the reason that we just looked at this is because for there to be true repentance, all three must turn away from sin and turn to God. That's the idea of repentance, turning your mind, your emotion, your will. It's a recognition that your mind and your heart and your desires have all been sinful. They've been wrong. They've been directed the wrong way. And so we grieve over it. We regret all of that. And then we turn away from it to God through Jesus Christ. And that is a change in our heart, our mind, and our will. And it's God's kindness that leads us to that place of repentance. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, But verse 5, because of your hard and unrepentant or impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, it's, it's, it's the sin that's infected every part of us, but then when we don't turn away from it, that's when we suffer his wrath. It's deserved wrath from God. So after describing that sin problem in chapters 2 and 3 and the consequences of eternal death for sin, he explains that our sin problem can only be resolved not by ourselves, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
and he explains and he describes that faith in chapters 4 and 5. So then in chapter 6, if you'll turn with me to chapter 6, because of that faith, if it is true faith, we can't continue to live in sin. We, we don't just live okay with sin like the 10 brothers were trying to do in Canaan. We have died to sin, verse 2 says. Verse 7 says we are set free from sin. There's a complete change within us. And that faith, this is what he's getting at, the faith will be accompanied by this kind of repentance. Look at verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider is the word for thinking, calculating, understanding in our mind. Your mind is different. It's a fundamental change in your mind from this to that. Not just a, I'm heading this way and I'll adjust course a little bit. Complete turnaround. Consider yourselves this way. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's our will again, our, our, our passions, our desires. The turning is explained in verses 13 and 14 so that your will is not to present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, that's turning of our will, what we want is now towards God and towards righteousness. So in verse 15, are we just supposed to keep on sinning? No, you would still be unchanged. No turning from slavery to sin to God. Instead, verse 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In your heart, you're turned. In your mind, you're turned. In your will, your passions, your desires, you're, changed. you're turned and changed. So true faith comes with a complete turning and change from one side to the opposite, from sin to the Savior in every way, in every part. Every part of us that's infected by sin, we turn over to our God in Jesus Christ. And then your words and actions change as a result of changing your mind, emotions, and will. That's what repentance looks like. That's what's included in repentance. That sorrow over sin, that recognition, yes, I'm guilty, but it doesn't stop there. It's turning over every part of us. So in your notes here, repentance is recognizing, confessing, regretting sin in your mind, emotions, and will so that you turn in every way from sin to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like. And this has always been the definition of repentance. It's just, it's, it's so clear and so helpful for us to see it here in Romans. And if you've never done that, if you've never recognized sin and said, not just, okay, nobody's perfect, <laughs> not just acknowledged guilt, but turned over your guilt and turned over your mind and your affections, your heart, your will to God, please don't leave here without talking to a pastor, without talking to one of our greeters, without talking to someone at the information counter. Don't leave without understanding that faith in Christ is accompanied by a turning away from sin to believe in Him for salvation. Back to Genesis, it's what we don't see in these 10 brothers. What we don't see is any of that, just that acknowledgement of guilt. So Reuben speaks up. And all he's interested in is, told you so, right? <laughs> told, I told you you shouldn't do it. I told you you shouldn't sin against him. The problem for Reuben is he didn't say don't sin against him. Reuben said, throw him in the pit, <laughs> right? He, he said, don't, don't kill him. Throw him in the pit. It was his idea. He tries to come out better than his brothers, but he was part of the plan. 
He's not repentant. He's trying to blame, and the others aren't repenting. They're only acknowledging guilt. But the whole time, Joseph is listening. He can't take it anymore. He, he leaves, and he weeps. He gets control of himself. He comes back. He arrests Simeon right in front of the rest of them, probably because the oldest was Reuben, but he's just found out that Reuben actually was in a pathetic little way trying to help. So he arrests the next oldest, Simeon, and they don't know Joseph has just ordered their money to be put back into their bags. They think they're on their way home. They think they're free for now, right? Don't have to deal with sin. We're free from the pressure of Egypt now. We're free from starving in this famine oh, we made it. We made it through. (laughs) Time to go home. So in this section, the testing of the 10 brothers begins as God starts working in their hearts. And we see him working, but it's not finished yet. So in the application here for this section, what God has for us as people, again, is better than anything we have right now. It's better than anything that we think we want or need in this world. His plan always requires change. That change begins with and continues with repentance. That's the blank there, repentance. Well, that's how the testing begins. Number three, they take the wrong lessons from Egypt. Verses 26 to 38, they're going to take the wrong lessons away. Their hearts have been touched by God. They're softened, but they're still in the microwave under that thaw button. (laughs) They're still thawing out. At least they can begin to feel the guilt of their sin. They head home. They've got to stop. They can't make it all in one day. It takes several days. doesn't tell us who in verse 27, but one of them opens his sack to feed his donkey, and there's his money. And he tells his brother, and their response, verse 28, is their hearts failed them. The literal Hebrew is that their hearts came out. <laughs> it can feel like that, right? I mean, it just drops, and you just, oh. They turn to each other quaking, trembling, You know, they're shaking in their sandals. Again, this is part of that testing. But what has Joseph actually done for them? What did Joseph do to them? He gave them back their money. You know, I mean, they came down there with money, and it's going to cost people, it's going to cost Egypt their entire lives. I mean, the people of Egypt are going to have to sell their houses, their lands, even themselves to become slaves to, to Pharaoh later on in later chapters here in Genesis. It costs people dearly. Joseph has just let them have enough grain for them and their families for a time for free. He's given it all back to them. But instead of receiving it as a blessing, because of their guilty conscience, it's a curse. Right? They're scared out of their wits now. The reason this is actually encouraging, though, is because if they were still very hardened in that sin, they might just be proud that they've gotten away with it. You know, look, we got the grain and the money. (laughs) Let's get out of here. But they know they're being dealt with by God for their guilt. So they say, What is this God is doing to us? They haven't taken the lesson the right way. The question, what is God doing? They know they're guilty. What what do you mean, why is God doing this? (laughs) Right? I mean, you know, God is is, is giving us some consequences for our sin. You know, God, why? What are you doing? How come you don't care? How come you're not there? When it's his discipline to call them to repentance. But rather than deal with the sin, they just continue on. In verse 29, they get home and they tell their father what happened, leaving out all of the guilt part, right? I mean, all that stuff about Joseph. They explained what happened. They let it slip that they have another brother, Benjamin. And they say, we're honest men. Again, still holding to that profession, right? We're not spies. But he wouldn't believe us. So he said, don't come back without your younger brother. So he kept Simeon to make sure that happened. But they say, here's the good news, dad. Here's, here's the good news. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of bad stuff. But look, 
Look at all of these grains of food, these sacks of grain. And, and just this is supposed to ease the mind of Jacob. They spill it all out there, and everybody's money is there. This is now the second time that some of Jacob's sons have returned without one of his sons, and they've all got a little extra money from it. <laughs> now, it didn't happen the same way this time, but Jacob's starting to see a pattern here, and he doesn't like it. So verse 35, when, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. Now, we've talked about why, their brothers, why the brothers were afraid, right? Their guilt. Uh, and, and they brought the wrong lesson home. You know, we can still try to get away with it. But why is Jacob afraid? Remember that he was previously afraid that something bad might happen to Benjamin, so he didn't let him go. We saw that he's living in constant fear and sorrow rather than trusting the Lord. Look what he says in verse 36. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin. So now it's blame. Look what you're doing. Look what, look what you've done to me. There's, a, there's an accusation here. You've, you've extended and worsened my suffering because now you've just lost Simeon. And you'd worsen it even more by taking Benjamin. You've done this. He's afraid. But he doesn't stop there. As we've said, we get the benefit of having the whole story. So we know that this is all actually happening for their good. But look at how he, he takes this. Verse 36, all this has come against me. <laughs> Everything is going wrong. Everything bad is happening to me. Everything's against me. And how often do we echo that same cry in our life? Look at all the stuff that's going wrong. Why did this have to happen? Why? I'm such a victim here. Why doesn't God care about me? And the entire time, he is caring for us. And he's leading us through. And he's working even in the difficult things to protect us from other difficult things or worse difficult things. And he's working through it all to protect us and to change us for what he has that's better than what we have now or better than what we think we want. Jacob takes the wrong lesson here from everything that's happening just like his sons do. What is going on? Where's God? Well, here comes Reuben again. <laughs> Reuben to the rescue. Again, his version of rescue is so inadequate. When he tried to rescue Joseph, oh, throw him in the pit and we'll, you know, we'll figure it out later. So look, Dad, uh, we have to go back, so just trust him to me. I'll take care of him. And if I don't, you can just kill my two sons. <laughs> Reuben. <laughs> what kind of console? You know, Dad, you've lost Joseph. You've lost Simeon. You're probably going to lose Benjamin. But if that happens, then you can kill two of your own grandsons. And that's supposed to make it better, right? <laughs> Jacob says, no. Joseph's dead. If Benjamin dies, if, even if harm should happen to him on the journey down, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. He says, I've already decided to continually live in sorrow. But if you did that to me, I'm just going to die. I'm going to give up. I'm going to continue my sinful response to sorrow by just giving up and dying. Wrong lessons for all of this tragedy all the way around. And, and you think about the things that happened to Joseph, the very real things that happened to Joseph. Again, these things that are happening to Jacob and the ten brothers, they're, they're not real trouble because Joseph is actually looking out for them. The trouble they're experiencing is because of guilt for sin or because of not trusting the Lord, living in sorrow and fear and blame. All of the trouble is coming about because of themselves. But the way that they handle it is so different, so contrasted with the way that Joseph handled very real trials and struggles. 
of being sold into slavery and working as a slave and being falsely accused and thrown into prison. And he trusted the Lord and he was growing and changing as God worked through all of that. God will have his way. We will be changed. You know, we we hold to that promise that he's not going to give up on us. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. He will bring about the end that he desired from the beginning. That's true. He's not going to give up on us. He's going to keep working, and he's going to keep working on these brothers over the next few chapters. So find some encouragement there that even when we're hard-headed and we don't get the lesson right away, God keeps working. He keeps caring. He keeps loving. Amen. Brothers and sisters, know events are not against you. Circumstances are not against you. Things don't happen against you. Satan is against you. This world that's under his control is against you. And as we looked at in Romans 1, your mind, your emotions, and your will can be against you. But God is not against you. And God's in control of the circumstances and the events. God is for you, brother, sister. Events don't happen against you. God's working through those things. You know, we're taking care of a baby right now, and whenever it comes time to change his diaper, he screams at us. (laughs) When it comes time to change him from his pajamas into some clothes, he gets really cold and he screams at us. (laughs) When he's hungry, he screams at us. And when he's tired, he screams at us. When he wants to be held, he screams at us. And when he wants to be put down, he screams at us. But all those things that we're doing that cause him to scream and the things that need to be done that are just causing him to scream all the time are for his good. It's what he needs, but he doesn't understand. I want it, I need it, and I need it now. (laughs) I need comfort. I want to be held. I want to be left alone. I want, I need. Why aren't you doing it? And we're trying to meet those needs and we're trying to do everything we can to care for this little boy We're there to comfort him even as he's screaming at us for not doing it right or not doing it fast enough. But even in that, we are tired. We we get selfish. We get lazy. We don't want to do it right away. We're in the middle of something else. God's not like that. The whole time we're screaming out at God, come on, God, do this. Where are you? How come we can't? When are you going to? What's going on? Why? He's always good for us. He's always working what's good for us. He's always doing what we need and what's best for us. It's often not pleasant. It's not often easy. But if we trust that he is the sovereign, wise, and good God, the faithful, living, almighty God, we'll know that everything that's coming into our lives and everything that's happening to us is not to break us and not to make us just fall apart unless we fall apart to him and trust in him. He's the sovereign God because he's bringing all this into my life. None of it's an accident. He's the wise God because he knows what's best. He knows what's better for me than I do. He's the good God because he's not doing it just to be cruel or for no purpose. He's he's bringing about something better. Rather than asking why in your notes, in trouble, ask how. How can I glorify God through this? Is there sin that I need to repent of? There may not be. When, when things happen to you, when you're sorrowful, again, sorrow is not a sin, but maybe I've responded in some way that's sinful. But is there some sin that I need to repent of? Is there something that, of God that I need to learn or remember? 
something I need to, to just reinforce, that God is this great, amazing, wise, good, sovereign God. So many more of his attributes than that, but when we come to him in trials, we learn about him. We go to his word. Something that should be encouraging for us is that he rewards us for faith and perseverance. James 1, Colossians 3, Galatians 6, so many places. Have I misplaced my hope? Our hope is in Jesus, not in those rewards and not in this life even necessarily. Is there someone else who needs comfort through their trials? How can I glorify God through these trials? Maybe by helping somebody else who's also going through trials. Our God is good. Our God is wise. Our God is powerful. The things that happen are for our good, for his glory. He's there for us through them the whole time. If we'll turn to him, if we'll trust him. Father, I pray, God, that you would work that out in our minds and hearts. God, life is so full of things that happen that are unexpected, unforeseen by us. Lord, there are good things. There is joy. There is happiness. Father, there is, uh, there is uh, so much that's given to us to enjoy and to take pleasure in, Father. God, I pray that we would do that, that we would be thankful for what you have given us. But God, I pray that our hope would never be there. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, that we would, that we would find our peace, our comfort, our joy in you, in loving you. God, it's uncertain what things are going to look like in the next few years. Lord, as we see things happening, as we see the news, we see the economy, we see um, enemies of our nation rising up, God, growing in power. We see, um, as was prayed earlier, Father, just uh, so much immorality, so much God-forsaking sin being grabbed onto and held onto and paraded. Father, there's so much wrong going on around us, but Lord, I pray that we would never worry or be sorrowful or angry or depressed, Father, or fearful about any of that. God, even when we are, Lord, I pray that you would come to us, Father, that you would make yourself known to us, Father, that we would grab onto you, hold onto you, Lord, to trust in you, to know that you are working through all of this. Lord, you are in control. You are good. You are wise. You are loving. You're perfect in all your ways. God, help us to know and to grasp and to live that, Father. Lord, thank you for your word that teaches us. Thank you for your, your faithfulness, Lord. Your faithfulness, your, your steadfast love that endures forever. God, it was real for Joseph. It was real for his brothers, even though they didn't see it. God, it's real still today for us, even when we don't see it. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes. Help us to have our minds and hearts open to you. God, that we would repent when our mind and our emotions our affections and our will go the wrong way, Father. We'd return back to you. Because God, when you, you say when we confess our sins, you're faithful. Again, you're faithful and you're just to cleanse us of our sins, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, I pray that you would work that in each of us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.